So we originally wanted to record this episode as one extended piece on both Orpheus and Woman in the Dunes, but we thought about it and now we feel it's best to have one episode dedicated to our thoughts on Orpheus and one episode on Woman in the Dunes. With that said, this is part one of two on Orpheus, and you can look forward to hearing part two on Woman in the Dunes on Monday, January 23rd. The mirrors would do well to reflect further. A single glass of water lights the world. The bird sings with its fingers. I'm just gonna start laughing. Okay. Did you say in French? I wish I could. I don't know French. Neither of us know French. Yeah. For that, we profusely apologize. But happy New Year, everyone. Happy We're New Year. 2017. Uh, I'm Josh. I'm Claire. And this is DC Screens, the podcast where we watch movies, argue movies, talk movies. Talk movies, argue movies. No. This is the <laughs> which podcast is this? Again? This is the podcast where we watch movies, talk movies, and argue, argue movies. movies. You know, I'm not even super married to that slogan, but whatever. Let's move on. <laughs> with a focus um, on DC. With culture. a focus on film culture in Washington DC and the surrounding areas. Um, today we're going to be talking about two uh, art house classics, two films that are pretty much as settled into the cinema canon as uh, any film could be or any films could be uh, Orpheus by Jean Cocteau and The Woman in the Dunes by, by Hiro- of not being able to master <laughs> Hiroshi, Hiroshi Teshigahara, Teshigahara. no oh, Teshigahara Teshigahara almost nailed it Na- almost nailed it that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's what we shoot for here on DC screens almost nailing it uh, the reason that we're looking at these films uh, this week is that these are going to be playing uh, this coming Sunday and next Sunday at the National Gallery as part of their film series, um, or of their many film series. And this one, these two in particular, are part of um, a film series that goes along with uh, From Los Angeles to New York. Or is it from right. New York to Los Angeles? Los Angeles to New York, 1959 to 1971. So that exhibition is showing in conjunction, conjunction with these films, uh, which is part of Virginia Dewan's Selects. Um, and these are her selections for the best films of the 50s and 60s that she has chosen. There were five altogether. We'll be covering two today. Uh, the ones that we did not cover that were screened earlier this month include Weekend, Cul-de-Sac with uh, the awesome Catherine Deneuve, and Lestrada on January 16th. So we're, we just missed uh, Lestrada, but we'll do Orpheus and Woman in the Dunes. Yeah. So all those are, are really good choices. And I, you know, they're, they're, and I don't mean this in a, like a, like a dismissive way, uh, with the exception of maybe cul-de-sac, although that's pretty well established too. These are, you know, pretty like, you know, these are kind of like canonical art house choices. Like these are, these kind of epitomize certain moments in avant-garde cinema. Certainly Weekend does. Certainly La Strada is yeah. maybe Fellini's, one of his most famous films. Mm-hmm. Um, and Orpheus and Woman in the Dunes are both, uh, you know, along with uh, something like The Seventh Seal, um, among the first wave of international art house cinema to really kind of penetrate American consciousness. Woman in the Dunes is maybe a little bit later. It's in the mid sixties. 64, right? Yeah. But it's still on that kind of first wave. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also all of these films have been chosen uh, by Virginia Dwan to go along with this exhibition. Uh, and of course this month is your last month to see uh, this excellent ex- exhibition, which we might talk a little bit about 
what in that uh, exhibition actually connects with these films. Um, this is your last chance to see it. It ends this month. Uh, so if you're like us and you're the kind of people who live in Washington, D.C., but don't take enough advantage of its many cultural offerings and go to the, the museums um, and things like that, definitely uh, head down there to see these films and to check out the, uh, uh, the exhibition. Without further ado, we're going to jump into uh, Orpheus uh, first, since that is um, playing uh, this Sunday, the 22nd. Uh, and also, that's the first movie in terms of uh, production chronologically. It's from 1950, directed by the great Jean Cocteau. I think uh, this was his kind of second big international hit after his beautiful and, and amazing version of Beauty and the Beast, yeah, which is uh, the film that I know him for most. Like, I've seen that a couple times, but I've only seen this. May I think... I think maybe I saw this or maybe it was actually Blood of the Poet, the film that came before this, like in film school and like a lot of, you know, films that you feel like you have to watch in film school when you're young and you're like a burgeoning cinephile and you're just kind of like consuming every movie you can get your hands on. Nothing really stuck. So I don't even remember if I saw this movie or Blood of the Poet or maybe both of them. Um, but seeing this movie again uh, in preparation for this felt like a, a fresh experience. So. Jean Cocteau, just to give you some background about his circle of friends and give you an idea of kind of what to expect if you have not seen this movie. Uh, it's it's very modern, uh, very art house, and, and if you're not familiar with art house, we can talk a little bit about the distinctive qualities of what makes this an art house film. But he was friends with, really good friends with Edith Piaf, Jean Genet, Picasso, um, everyone who was kind of in his circle were these, uh, you know, hardcore modernists that I think probably influenced his filmmaking. Um, Maria Gasseres, who was who plays the princess or death in this film, uh, was also a, a great actress in her own right and had a 16-year-long affair with Camus, which I didn't know. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, but the things that really jumped out to me about this film uh, are basically, I think it's, it's great how it opens with a refresher on the Orpheus myth, which I had forgotten since my college days and, and just kind of hearing the basics again was really helpful because I couldn't dig it up. I will you know? confess that my familiarity with the Orpheus myth comes mostly from uh, Neil Gaiman's uh, great graphic uh, series of graphic novels, comic books, whatever you want to call them. Uh, there's a whole... Uh, I thought you said Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond, <laughs> yes. You ever heard that Neil... Is it Neil Gaiman or Neil Diamond? I, I Neil think Gaiman yeah. is the author of the same man, not uh, not the Jewish Elvis. No, if he had written it, he should have... I know. He, he, he was the Orpheus of... Yeah. Of he is the American Orpheus, Neil Diamond. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, keep um, going. I, I'm following you now. Yeah. I'm tracking. Cool. I, <laughs> I totally lost you. No, um, Your introduction to Orpheus. There was a, I forget which uh, which series it was in. That wasn't my introduction to Orpheus. Like I guess I was kind of vaguely Maybe aware. Of the, yeah, like uh, I used to love um, the Edith Hamilton uh, book Mythology, which I've been well. It's kind of like the condensed, uh, kind of popularizing uh, survey of all of Greek and Roman mythology. In the Sandman, the telling of that story is you know pretty faithful to the myth as it's established in lots of works of classical modern literature. So it's interesting to I mean I think you really have to come to this film knowing that it is a kind of commentary on that story. So we kind of need that refresher at the beginning, mm -hmm. um, and this is such like a kind of like an essential kind of like foundational story for a lot of Western culture and a lot of. 
uh, arts and a lot of music and a lot of literature, uh, whether it is something like uh, Rainer Maria Rilke's. I was just going to uh, say yeah, Sonnets to Orpheus, Orpheus yeah. uh, or whether it's The Sandman. So. Yeah. <laughs> Not by Neil Diamond. Um, <laughs> Damon, yeah. Diamond. Exactly. You know um, Right. But I think that refresher at the beginning is, is very, uh, helpful and I, I'm not going to go through it. It's, it's pretty exhaustive and you can, you can kind of, uh, revisit that at your own pace. Um, but to kind of just hear that and then have the invitation from the filmmaker to interpret the film as we wish and as we see fit, I think is also very helpful because then we're free to kind of take obviously from, take from this, what we like. Um, and so what I took from it is, is mostly these references to being asleep and, uh, throughout the film, there are many references to Orpheus, being asleep, uh, wanting to go to sleep, having blinders on. Um, and I think sleepwalking is another thing he's sleepwalking. And I think it just calls upon us to, to say, okay, well, what does it mean to be awake? What does it mean to wake up from something that, you know, maybe from our lives that we've just been living in a kind of dreamlike state? What does it mean to wake up and open your eyes and see what's in front of you and see what's around you and appreciate it? Um, and I think that that to me was the most beautiful thing about this film. And I think the, the fact that it's made in such a way that everything is a bit dreamlike, a bit, uh, um, surreal, I think also helps kind of put you in this reflective state. Well, I mean, it feels on one hand very much in the kind of surrealist tradition mm -hmm. of the earlier 20th century. Like Bunuel or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Bunuel, Salvador Dali. I think there is some connection with the producers of this film or something. So there's some connection between this and The Age of Gold. And I think that, you know, this takes a lot of those surrealist tropes or those surrealist um, gestures and places them in a narrative that's a little bit easier to digest and uses them to tell a kind of fantasy story that's about, like you said, a kind of self-awakening, self-understanding mm -hmm. about the nature of art, about the nature of the artist, about the, you know, the nature of kind of consciousness and how it connects with the creative impulse. And you know, for me, more so than the, the kind of literary themes or the themes of the story, those are important. What sticks with me from this film is like individual moments, individual images that are very much um, kind of drawn from that surrealist tradition. I think that's, you know, it's, whether it's the the eyes that are painted on, that mm -hmm. are kind of like the, these kind of static, um, almost like uh, the kind of eyes that, you know, would have been painted on a uh, like a classical statue when they actually still had the paint on them. Mm -hmm. Or there's that great shot of the hands going that's into the mirror, which you know, study uh, accomplished with the liquid mercury. Um, but, you know, and you know, he does uh, cocktails and also in Beauty and the Beast kind of uses tricks. I don't even call them tricks, cinematic devices that on one hand are transparent. You'd run the film backwards, you know, it's not, yeah, that's yeah, great, yeah, which, yeah. but it's beautiful. It, it works, works perfectly. So well. It's so elegant. It's so simple beyond the, the kind of overarching effect of the film. I think what's stays with me more personally is just those individual images and it's you know worth seeing this movie just to kind of experience those aesthetic moments so if there is a film that you know you can place in the context of seeing it in a museum instead of in a traditional movie theater as you know this is playing at the national gallery right um and have its place in a museum kind of not seem deflationary or not seem inappropriate um, I actually think this is like a, a pretty meaningful context to see this film, to see it in the context of other art, since it is in dialogue with so right. many other artistic traditions and literary traditions. 
Um, and you can which almost is maybe why it's chosen, right? And you can maybe even also, if if since it's going to be showing at the National Gallery in the auditorium, it, it almost can be viewed as like an art installation. I mean, if this were screening, you know, if we were back in in what is it, nineteen fifty, um, I feel like this could almost be like a piece that's being just like shown on projected onto a wall in a museum, just because of the way that certain scenes are shot, mm-hmm. um, and and I think it's just done so brilliantly. I think. More so even than you know, I think maybe both both of these movies that we're talking about today, but certainly this one, as long as you knew that it was about the Orpheus story, I mean, if you had no French as we we, we clearly, clearly do not, do not. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, you could watch this movie without subtitles and I think it would still be yeah. perfectly engrossing. Uh, even with that linguistic barrier. And you're right, it's the kind of movie like an installation that, you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily want to, but you could almost like kind of walk in and out of it as if, it, you know, we're, you know, a film is right. going to be just projected in a black room and you kind of come in and watch 10 minutes of it and it's engrossing and you leave and you come back. Like it's, it has enough narrative there to, you know, it's only 90 minutes. It's not like a very long movie. But it is very dialogue heavy, mm-hmm. unlike mm-hmm. Woman in the Dunes. Mm-hmm. Like it is, I feel like everything they say You know, we were talking about earlier, like this economy of language, everything that's said, you know, you can almost write it down like a quote. And I feel like that's kind of meant to you're meant to kind of keep these these words and and listen to them and discuss them and examine their meaning after you've, you know, kind of digested the material. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. And I almost have to walk back what I just said. (laughs) It is it is. um, I mean, there's yeah, there's like a there's a really beautiful literary quality to the dialogue that maybe in discussions of the film kind of gets overshadowed by how inventive the imagery is. And I believe this was actually, I mean, Jean Cocteau wrote this as a play and then adapted his yeah. own play to cinema, to, to film. So that must be, I mean, I think that accounts for not just poetry as in visual poetry, but the actual kind of poetry, poetry of, of the of the script. Yeah. And also just, you know, going back to this as a, a quintessential modernist piece, I think there's so many things about it that are interesting in terms of music art. Um, for instance, there's that one line where after Orpheus is told that he cannot look at his wife ever again, um, he he sees a picture of his wife in a magazine and he's like, oh no! And he covers it up and the guide says, or the chauffeur says, a picture of your wife is not your wife. And I mean, immediately I thought of this is not a pipe, right? Like this mm-hmm. is a picture mm-hmm. of a pipe is not a pipe, right? It's yeah. just, this is not, this is a representation of what the reality is but it is not the reality and you can say the same thing about the mirrors that are uh you know shown throughout Mm -hmm. the movie like your reflection is not you right Mm -hmm. it it is not who you are do not spend so much time in front of this mirror right um and i think that just that that kind of self-awareness that kind of just uh dialogue like you said with with modern art i think is very interesting as well yeah, and you, you could say the same thing about um, the the film's commentary on on poetry itself. Right. Um, the word, yeah. The word is not the thing. The word is not the emotion. The accumulation of words in the form of a poem is not the experience itself. It is a symbol, just as much as a picture is a symbol. And so maybe that's part of when Orpheus is, you know, kind of listening for these uh, strange, abstruse messages. In the talking car. Uh, I forget, I forget why I read it, but it, you know, someone said somewhere that something I was reading that like this kind of almost uh, sounds a lot like the uh, you know coded messages that uh, the British were broadcasting uh, to the French Resistance uh, during World War II. Oh. you know, they, like it's uh, they don't they kind of they sound beautiful and they kind of sound uh, appealingly opaque, but they you know they don't really have that's any meaning. And again, that's a kind of commentary on. Um, 
and then like the limitations and also the nature of language as a system of symbols, just like all these other pictures and all these other kinds of uh, modes of representation are also just symbols. You can never quite get at the thing itself. Right. And I think that's, that's interesting. Cause I had, when I heard these messages being broadcast, I started thinking that it sounded like, um, kind of like those self-help audio books that you listen to. I don't listen to these, but I've seen sure them on know. TV Neither shows. Do I. None of us do. We never, <laughs> I have we read self our films. <laughs> And, you know, occasionally something like Gremlins or the best right. experience Gremlins. We don't too, need yeah. self-help books. Um, yeah. No, but I, you know, repeat three Couple times and, here. right. Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. I mean, hypnotic, it sounds right? exactly, yeah. it's, it has this hypnotic yeah. uh, quality, which I think is also, again, reminiscent of that, the kind of psychoanalysis that was prevalent at the time. Um, and, and of course, audiobooks came later and these types of things came later. But I think that kind of, you know, repeat after me, like I am whatever, whatever you would say your mantra would be. I think it kind of reflects that same quality. Mm-hmm, for sure. The, the, the material that comes specifically from Greek religion, mythology, uh, Hades and Penelope? Perse- no, Persephone. Mm. Who's, who's, who's the queen of the, the dead? She's down there six days. And I don't know. I think it's Persephone. Sure. Um, anyway. Just say yeah, so Hades. We, yeah, we replace it with the, with the princess who is death. Which was a the, great touch, I thought. Mm-hmm, great mm-hmm. touch to have death be so attractive and so uh, captivating just to look at. And I think that you know, you almost want to be like, well, who wouldn't fall in love with death? Because she seems awesome and intriguing and mysterious. And, and the idea that that's part of what it means to be a poet or to be an artist is to be in love with the death. You're kind of chasing obsessively after, chasing after the idea of mortality, and then also by sensing the idea of immortality. You, you can't seek to overcome the limitations of an ordinary human life. You can't seek to become immortal through art or through any other means without chasing after death itself, right? But I think it's interesting how he chases after death and becomes obsessed with this notion of death, but then it it takes on a romantic quality, which is unexpected and I think very really cool. I mean, I can't really think of any other way to describe it. Yeah, and it is, you know, there's a, there's like a really, um, you know, powerful strain of eroticism throughout this, and then sensuality. Yeah, she watches him sleep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What? Yeah, yeah. And, um, (laughs) and and she's, you know, the the way that she and also her kind of henchmen on the motorcycle, they're kind of dressed almost like in this kind of like fetish gear type way. Like they're very, very sexy, very, very um, kind of sleek and powerful. Uh, There's kind of like a, a little bit of you know, also kind of like like an S and M dimension to 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 the way that they're characterized, and you know, both in their sensuality and also the power that they have over the the characters on on our side of the mirror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, to kind of echo that the the kind of maybe borderline S and M component um, is just the fact that everything is is there are orders right that have to be taken mm-hmm. and have to be obeyed, and so it's not like death is just wandering around willy-nilly taking people's lives. Um, death has orders that she has to obey. And then likewise, there are rules within not just her own world, but within our world that must be adhered to, right? And I think that that kind of, those terms and, and the fact that there are orders that have to be taken and obeyed, I think kind of echoes that a bit. Yeah, this idea that there's like there's some kind of there's a set of constraints. Right. There's a kind of discipline and a kind of order built into nature that yeah no one on either side of the mirror in either world um, really has the power to control or to to abrogate. Like they they're fixed. Mm-hmm. What did you think the ending meant when we have Orpheus reunited with Eurydice, kind of moving back into a more kind of conventional domestic role, conventional 
romance with uh, his wife. With his wife, and he's going to be a father. And then we see um, Death and uh, is her chauffeur, right? Yeah. Uh, whose name I'm gonna let you pronounce. Uh, no, Hertubis. I don't. Yeah, I don't no, know. I'm not it. sure. That's exactly <laughs> what it does, I'm sure. Um, and they're kind of wandering the ruins of the underworld. Like, what do you think? Yeah, they're going to be punished, right? So they said they, they said something like the repercussions are not going to be pretty. Whatever's going to happen is not going to be pleasant. And I think they're going off to be reprimanded for breaking the rules. Her for falling in love with the person that she was supposed to take away, and then taking away his wife, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then her, her tubis, or whatever, the chauffeur and student who falls in love with uh, Eurydice, his wife. Um, and, and so breaking these rules obviously has has consequences even for death, right? But I thought that going back in time was, was a beautiful shot. And I think I, – I don't know if I particularly like it, but I like the idea that Orpheus wakes up and his – he realizes now that what he should, should value is – his family, right? Because before he says things like, uh, you know, she, his wife Eurydice says, you don't hear me. You don't, you, you know, you don't hear me. You don't listen or something like that. And then later he does, he listens, he wakes up, he sees everything around him, he notices it and he appreciates it. Whereas before he became obsessed with the talking car, the messages that were being broadcast because he thought that that's what he should be doing, right? He's been resting on his laurels for too long. And now mm-hmm. he's like, I need to wake up. But waking up did not mean writing poems in a you know simplistic mm-hmm. uh stripped down way it meant being a father yeah and it didn't a husband. mean these kind of aesthetic experiences this kind of being engrossed in you know all of these the whether it's the the poems that are being broadcast or whether it's any, any of the other kind of objects of fascination in the film like as we said before they they're still all simulacra of some kind like they're representations and Maybe that message is almost like a little bit conservative that, you know, what life really yeah. entails of is kind of like returning to one's Yeah, I don't know if I can get on board with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is there's a, there's, a, there's a parallel there with Woman in the Dunes, but I think yeah. Woman in the Dunes is much more critical uh, of, you know. And depressing. Yeah, critical. It's, I mean, Woman in the Dunes in many ways is kind of almost like a horror film. We'll talk about that yeah. later. But, you know, we have two protagonists, Orpheus and uh, the entomologist. Um who make kind of similar decisions at, or maybe not similar decisions, but end up in a similar That's interesting. place. They end up fixed in a situation that originally they were trying a trap. to escape. It's a trap they're trying <laughs> to escape from. And, uh, you know, the kind of habits of mind that Cocteau's film seems to, at least in a, a narrow way at the end, kind of lionize, uh, I think are deeply criticized in, uh, in Woman of the Dunes. What interesting, what's interesting to me, uh, or I guess what I find really like kind of amusing and fascinating in Orpheus is this idea that you know he is like a middle-aged poet who's kind of like resting on his laurels. That there are like these like young poets like kind of hanging out, like trying to usurp him. They're like a street gang, right. like fights break out, and then they kill him at the end. Was they kind of they kind of uh, take the place of the Bacchae, which mm-hmm. you know, that's who uh, kill Orpheus in the original myth, and they're the the female in the myth, or the female found, uh, founders, uh, female, the women's league, uh, the, women's league. <laughs> um, the uh, uh, followers of Bacchus or Dionysus. So you know, very much the kind of animating spirit of mm-hmm. you know, Party. certainly a lot of poetry, and or certainly the kind of uh, poetry that these artists seem to be involved in, and that idea of 
art as a kind of battle and a battle for status and a battle for something permanent that is in fact very fleeting, maybe that places the ending into a context where we kind of understand that Cocteau is not saying, you know, everyone's place is back in the home, you know, with, you know, being, mm-hmm. being a parent and having a child, but that that is more real and maybe a better chance at something a if legacy. not permanent, some kind of legacy uh, than artistic and creative endeavors, which in the end, you know, maybe you will always be ephemeral, always kind of slip through your fingers. You'll always be, you know, chasing after the wind. Yeah. That, that redirection of ambition, I think is, is interesting to where, you know, I think Orpheus wants, see, this is, this is where I have the problem. So Orpheus is tired of, of making the poem or writing the poems that he writes. And he wants to write these, these very stripped down, uh, you know, one line poems, kind of like, like something Ezra Pound would write, right. And it's very modern. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think petals that, on a wet, right. Petals on a wet black bow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that it's interesting that, that when he says these phrases, the ones that are being broadcast in the talking car, um, you know, these phrases mean more than any, than my whole body of work that I've ever written than any single one of my poems. And his wife says something like those tiny phrases will not put food on the table and will not pay for clothes and bills. There's a utility to this movie. There's like a, a fact that, that everything you do has to be useful. Right. And we hear that from death, um, from the princess. She says, don't make useless remarks. Don't, don't be, make yourself useful. Um, so being useful is also very, important in this film doing something that's not just maybe maybe fleeting like you said but also just not substantial that's not enough right it's not enough to carry you through life and i find that sad <laughs> but, but yeah, you yeah. know because <laughs> um, I, I want i want to be a bohemian and be like you know yeah. words will you maybe know that, live. maybe that was kind of an autobiographical statement from Cocteau, <laughs> who is you know um not from you but from Cocteau. right right i know yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, I, who was, uh, you know, it may, like, um, surprisingly few filmmakers are kind of like Renaissance men. I think of Cocteau, I can think of, uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini, oh, Pasolini yeah. a handful of other people who Godard. were also, Jodorowsky, sorry. Yeah. I mean, like they were also poets and writers and playwrights and, you know, he was a kind of, you know, multi-talented mm-hmm. artist who worked in a lot of different media as did, uh, the director of Woman of the Dunes, which was kind of, again, and I think that's probably part of why maybe both these films have been chosen is both of the directors were also yeah. artists in a broader sense, not just filmmakers. They were involved in other ventures as well. Right. The idea of, um, this being a kind of statement of, exhaustion or at least kind of frustration with one's youthful artistic aspirations and how you know fulfilling them is not as satisfying as you imagine that it's going to be when you're you know 20 something who is trying to be the one that usurps orpheus right suggest um jacques suggest yeah jacques suggest <laughs> uh, great name yeah great name we probably are pronouncing it I know. could be, could be. <laughs> it no sounds good Sounds great. We were scrambling desperately, like on YouTube, to like figure out how to pronounce like you know French and Japanese names. And I don't think I don't think any of that stuff stuck. So yeah, I was going to try to have to forgive us. Yeah, I was going to try to learn all those phrases in French, and I thought I could do it, but I, yeah. I failed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we uh, we we did our best with what we with what our with what our, our limited with our limited language. education. 
um, and knowledge and just, you know, maybe if we like Orpheus, like Orpheus, maybe if we spent less uh, of our formative years watching movies and more like learning something practical, like a fucking language, maybe we would be having an easier time right now. Although I do know some Russian, but that doesn't help us here. So you don't. I do. No, yet. (laughs) I do. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. We'll do. So we'll, we do we'll do Tarkovsky next month, and yes! you can you can show me how the subtitles on the criteria how accurate they are. Andre Rublev are inaccurate. Yeah. Andre um, Rublev. No, let's do Stalker. No, I would. All right. We okay. Have this discussion later. Um, all right. So uh, why why would you, someone who hasn't seen this film, someone who's maybe adverse to something that is classified as art house, it's a foreign film. It's in black and white. It's being it's screened very, at a museum. Like it doesn't sound like fun. It sounds like take your <laughs> medicine, but it actually is a very fun and enjoyable and engrossing movie. How would you pitch this to them? What is? How do you explain to you know, twenty-two year old college student that's trying to understand film beyond you know the AFI top one hundred list or something like that? What do you What do you say to them? That's the value in seeing this. Not just the value. Why is Why is seeing this film a worthwhile and kind of beautiful experience. So I think this is a worthwhile uh, experience to pursue. And probably, you know, at at the auditorium of the National Gallery, it it would be a great experience just because, first of all, the discussion that would probably follow after you see the film with a group of people, um, because how can you not discuss this film after you watch it? And then also just the fact that, that viewing it in a museum, I think, is interesting as opposed to a theater or on your laptop or your mobile device or something. Mobile device, what, what the fuck? The phone, whatever. <laughs> you know, mobile device, you know, tablet. Whatever, tablet. Hopefully, yeah, yeah. Um, Technology. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's more rewarding to see it, to see an art piece in a place that displays art because then you can kind of view it in that context. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's very, it will lead to fruitful discussions that will enrich your life. Um, mm-hmm. I just, I feel like it would be a great experience why not you and know? if there's one like central theme that i feel like we or maybe it's just in my head but i, I hope that we're kind of hammering home and like every uh hammering home and like every podcast is that seeing a film with an audience is a great experience yes both of these movies are available on filmstruck the new um streaming service from turner classic movies and criterion collection mm-hmm. but it's not the same thing uh seeing this on 35 millimeter right that, and in, in a, yeah in a theater uh, with an audience, it's not the same thing as watching it on your laptop with all the d- attendant distractions. Mm-hmm. And I know this is this is going to be challenging because it is the Sunday after inauguration, which we're trying oh, to know. Yeah. we're trying to be you know trying to avoid. But what a great distraction, market. right? Yeah, what, I a, mean, what a welcome relief yeah. from uh, you know whatever. This is where people went during the war, right? To the theaters. I mean, it, this is where we're going yeah, now yeah, in no, times in of any, distress. Yes, in any crisis, uh, you know. <laughs> Like in the, during the depression, right? You know, films still thrived, and uh, you know it's going to be uh, bedlam in the city this week, um, especially downtown. It's going to be a straight up fucking nightmare. Um, but if you can wade through uh, what's left of civilization after, if you assume assuming the, the city is still here on yeah. Sunday, try to make it to the auditorium, uh, the NGA auditorium, to see Orpheus. Um, I don't know what art house means necessarily. You kind of talked about it earlier, like you've yeah. like got some accepted definition. To me, it's kind of like a catch-all term for films that are unconventional in some respect and films that are deliberately philosophical mm-hmm. in some respect um, and also films that 
I mean, they're not like blockbuster films. These are not yeah, things that you're going to, you know, but they're films, you know, right. like even, even films that have like a, are animated by a kind of, you know, I would, you know, we talk a lot about film noir, at least we do, you know, if we talk about it on the podcast, but we talk about it together. Um, you know, film noir, I, you know, it's a kind of a genre, it's kind of a historical period, but if anything, it's like, it's like a artistic movement within yeah. the commercial apparatus of Hollywood, right? That I can define. <laughs> yeah. It's artistic. Easily. It is like, it, it comes from a, like a self-conscious place of making art as opposed to just a commercial product. Right. But that's not art house. That's like art within the commercial mm-hmm. context, whereas art house films, at least, uh, ostensibly are trying to like be outside or transcend the the commercial context for film since that's primarily since its inception what film has been unfortunately you know before it's an art form it is a commercial product that exists to sell tickets to sell commercials to sell products um and art house if anything just means kind of trying to sidestep films association with commerce and consumerism right and you know market it as an art i mean a piece of art right i mean this is like we did say market as the oh, okay fine okay you're right you're right you're right it's present it yeah. present it as a mm-hmm. form of art i guess all right um and if you can't or in addition to uh checking out orpheus this weekend sunday the 22nd hopefully you can make it to the nga the following weekend on sunday the 29th yes, yes. 29th at four o'clock to at see, o'clock Woman, to in see Woman in the dunes which is i believe what we're going to talk about next unless you have something else to say about orpheus no i'm totally ready for Woman in the dunes okay cool Oh, uh-huh.